at least according to the scholar whose outline of the book I am following and that I used in introducing the book to you some Lord's Days back. Verse 13 of chapter 5 begins the second major section of Joshua. This section extends from 5.13 to 12.24, and it is the narrative of, Ill- of Israel's military conquest of Canaan. The light vort, or leading word, of this section is the Hebrew verb to take, as the subject is Israel's taking the land. This seven-chapter section contains all the military history recorded in the book. The chapter division, as we have it, between chapters 5 and 6 suggests a new beginning at chapter 6, verse 1. However, 5, 13 to 15, narrate the Lord's appearance to Joshua. What he said to him on that occasion is given to us in chapter 6, 1 through 5. These two paragraphs, then, belong together as the narrative of a single event, a precursor to the attack on Jericho. On the other hand, there is an obvious reason why verses 13 to 15 were left in the fourth chapter. This short paragraph also looks back to the nation's circumcision and celebration of Passover because it too concerns the holiness of the people in the presence of God. Here too, spiritual concerns take precedence over military strategy. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was sitting or standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now it appears that Joshua had walked away from the camp some distance, perhaps to be by himself, to think through his strategy for the upcoming battle, perhaps to seek a vantage point from which he could get a good look at Jericho. No doubt he was wondering what he was supposed to do next. The city loomed before Israel, silent and impenetrable, a formidable obstacle in the path of Israel's conquest of Canaan. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, when a supernatural being appears with drawn sword, he is an adversary. Rather than a friend, he threatens death rather than offers help. In fact, the precise language here is found uh, in only two other places in the Old Testament. In the case of the angel of the Lord who blocked the way before Balaam and his donkey, and in the case of the plague visited upon Israel when David numbered the people, and you remember David encountering the angel of the Lord there on Mount Zion. So the question uh, Joshua asks, is a natural one. And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The enigmatic answer given to Joshua's question suggests that Joshua's simple categories are insufficient to identify the person standing before him. Are you for us or are you against us? The army of the Lord could be a reference to the army of Israel, but it is probably a reference to the angelic host as elsewhere in the Old Testament. It would have been, of course, a great encouragement to Joshua to know that his army wouldn't be the only one fighting against Jericho and that the Lord's host was going to be 
fighting on their side. The fact that its commander stood with a sword in his hand meant at least that his army was ready for battle. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Before the Lord delivered his instructions, it was imperative that Joshua realize who it was who stood before him. The command to take off his sandals is, of course, reminiscent of a similar scene in the life of Moses when the Lord spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. We know now that this is a theophany, an appearance of Yahweh himself. This is not a mere man. He may have taken the form of a man, but this is the manifestation of God in human form. That point will be confirmed in the second verse of chapter 6 when the one speaking to Joshua is explicitly identified as Yahweh. In Moses' case as well, you remember, uh, he was told at that, on that occasion that God intended to deliver his people and to bring them to the promised land. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. The first verse is an aside. It establishes the context for the instructions that follow. It was no easy task in those days before gunpowder to take a walled city. Joshua must have been wondering how it was to be done. But the Lord had his own plan. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. The prominence of the number seven in these instructions, uh, seven days, seven priests, seven trumpets, seven times on the seventh day, indicates the completeness of the triumph that the Lord will give to Israel. In the literature of the ancient Near East, several examples have been found of an action that is repeated for six days to be followed by a decisive event on the seventh. And of course, as you remember, a number of Israel's festivals lasted seven days. The trumpet blasts represented the presence of the Lord. Since Jericho was dedicated to destruction as an act of divine judgment uh, because of its sin, the Lord will be the one who destroys the city. And these instructions are designed to highlight that fact. The ceremonial acts, actions of the army emphasize how little it will contribute to the victory that the Lord uh, is going to give apart from its confidence in the Lord and his power. The ark, of course, represented the presence of the Lord who would himself visit doom on the city. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, this on the seventh day, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. With no explanation, the Lord delivered his strange instructions to Joshua and declared what the result would be when Israel had done precisely what the Lord commanded. The victory was not to be won by conventional means. Now, this would not always be the case. But the first battle in Canaan 
was to make the point that would be true of all subsequent battles. No matter how the battle was waged or the city was to be taken, it would be the Lord who would give the victory. Our Father in heaven, we have a passage before us deeply fixed in the mind and heart of the church and indeed Western culture as a whole. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But Lord, there is a lesson here, a principle here, fundamental to our faith. Help us to see it and then write it upon our hearts by your gracious spirit that we may live according to it all our days. For Jesus' sake, amen. When the Lord appeared to Joshua outside of Jericho, he gave him very explicit instructions for the movement of the army. But those instructions made no reference to anything remotely like a military strategy. They didn't identify the time of day or the direction or the strategy for the army's attack. The army would be required neither to besiege the city nor to attempt to surmount its walls. It had only to wait until the walls fell down at the command of the Lord. The army, far from maneuvering in some conventional military fashion, had instead to conduct what was in effect a ritual of faith in the presence and the power of the Lord. A presence and power indicated by the ark, the priests, and the trumpets. And as I said, there is something fundamental here. Remember, we're talking about gaining possession of the promised land. Israel's capture and possession of Canaan is, throughout the rest of the Bible, a picture or a typology of salvation. Canaan, in this respect, stands in for heaven, at least so far as theological principles are concerned. Israel got Canaan the way anybody gets heaven. In other words, we're being given here a basic lesson in the way of salvation. These odd instructions, although more odd to us in the 21st century than they would have seemed to Joshua and the Israelites in the mid-15th century B.C., they were even then utterly unconventional and unexpected. This was no one's idea of how to capture a fortified city. The people of Jericho certainly would have wondered. They would have been amazed to see what they saw Israel doing. What in the world were these strange people thinking? It's not too much to say, however, that nothing is as characteristic as all of the Bible's teaching about salvation and the Christian life as its utter lack of convention. What the Bible teaches about salvation and the life of faith is invariably unconventional, by which I mean it always confounds the ordinary expectations. There is nothing in the Bible's teaching about the way of salvation, or for that matter, the Christian life, that conforms to the way men and women naturally think about such things. You remember Paul's remark to this effect in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message he had been preaching in Corinth, the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins, Paul admitted was an outrageous blasphemy to the Jews and simply ridiculous to the Gentiles. The Jew found the very idea of God in the person of a human being, nothing short of blasphemy, much as a Muslim does today. And the Gentiles laughed at the notion that citizens of the vaunted Roman world should depend 
for their lives on the life and death of an amateur Jewish rabbi from some backwater town in one of the most troublesome provinces of the empire, all the more when crucifixion, the manner of his death, was what Romans did to common criminals. Nothing has changed since Paul's day. Different peoples in different times and places have found the Christian message offensive or ridiculous for different reasons, but it always defies conventional thinking. It always requires people to think in ways utterly different from those to which they are accustomed. It will always strike most people as about as likely, the Christian faith, about as likely as attacking a fortified city by marching around it for seven days blowing trumpets. We call our message the gospel, the good news, as if everybody is going to welcome it, be delighted to hear it. But most people, once they understand it, find any number of reasons not to believe it and actually to object to it. It's been so from the beginning. As I've told you before, someone has remarked that there was perhaps no more unlikely thing in the history of mankind than that Israel in the 15th century B.C. would have had a commandment not to worship idols. The entire world worshipped idols. Polytheism was the ancient world's philosophy of life, and idols were the means by which the gods took their place among men, by which men served the many gods of the ancient pantheon, and by which they received benefits from them. To believe that there was but one God and that he could not be worshipped by means of an image or served by that means was for a citizen of the ancient world the equivalent of believing that the sun set in the east and rose in the west. It was the contradiction of what everyone knew. Or so it was until a person like Naaman the Syrian Realize just what, of sort, what sort of being the living God actually was. In the ancient Far East, it was the same. Richard Mao recollects his once serving on an interreligious panel in which his counterpart, a Buddhist, representing a faith very ancient, five centuries before the appearance of Christ, very succinctly expressed her basic disagreement with Christianity. She said that on the Christian view... We are all sinners in need of redemption, while on the Buddhist view, we are all presently ignorant people who need enlightenment. Precisely. Still today, hundreds of millions, if not billions of human beings in the world, in the West now, as well as in the Far East, think that man's problem is ignorance, not sin. A view that they were granted with their mother's milk, fundamental to all the ways in which they think about life. A message about deliverance from sin and guilt before a holy God, therefore, is utterly strange, alien to their worldview. It doesn't make any sense to them, and often it positively offends them. In the early days of Christianity after Pentecost, it was the same. Christians spread out over the world, proclaiming that there was but one living and true God, that he had become a man in Jesus of Nazareth, and that he was alone the Savior of the world. Every part of that message offended the sense, the taste, and the culture 
of the Greco-Roman world. They had long believed in many gods. Their religion lay at the root of their civic rituals, their self-identity as people of the Mediterranean world. Their polytheism was so deeply ingrained in their culture that the repudiation of it by Christians was regarded as deeply unpatriotic, if not actually seditious. What is more, the notions of both the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ, so crucial to the Christian message, were not just ridiculous, they were positively repulsive to the Greco-Roman mind. In their worldview, the material world, including the human body, was the inferior dimension of existence, the source of all the lower, ugly, and disreputable aspects of human behavior. The idea that human beings would be physical creatures forever, therefore, was preposterous to them. Salvation was the escape of the soul from the body. Resurrection, in their view, would amount to the soul's re-imprisonment. And for the same reason, the notion that God would consent to dwell in a human body was preposterous. As Celsus, one of the first Romans to write against the Christian faith, argued, what is the purpose of such a descent on the part of God? Was it in order to learn what was going on among men? I thought, not, I thought God knew everything. For Celsus, it was obvious, something every educated man understood, that the way to God was the ascent of the human mind, not the descent of God himself. In every culture, at every time, the Christian message has proved to be a direct result, or a direct assault on the received wisdom of that society, on its conventional ways of thought. And what is true, or what was true in the ancient world, is still true today. Now, the typical American isn't a polytheist, and hasn't any particular prejudice against the material world, but his worldview is equally alien to the message of the Bible and the Christian faith. For Americans today, as for Canaanites in Joshua's day, the Christian message, by which I mean the actual message of the Bible, is the equivalent of attacking a walled city by walking around it seven times, blowing trumpets. Think about this. Christianity is the message that the one living and true God entered the world to secure the salvation of sinful human beings. Jesus summed up the inexorable logic of that message when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's probably no more outrageous idea to the modern American democratic mind than that naked exclusivism. One God one way, one Savior, one salvation, one way of life. Modern Americans are pluralists and relativists. They believe that, at least in the religious dimension, truth is what works for you. If you want to start an argument at your next cocktail party, just say loudly enough for others to hear, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Every other religion and philosophy that does not have Jesus Christ at its center must be fundamentally mistaken because Jesus Christ is the center of reality as both its maker and its redeemer. 
such a statement is widely regarded as arrogant, intolerant, utterly unsophisticated. Who are we to think that we alone have the truth? The very idea. I don't say that Americans usually think very clearly about any of this or could mount a convincing argument for their conventional thinking. Few, if any, could. It's a position so self-contradictory that it is rarely examined. After all, what is being asserted is that it is an absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. It's more a prejudice than careful thought, more bombast than argument, but be that as it may, pluralism, the notion that there is no single truth for everyone in the world, is now America's conventional thinking. It is deeply seated in the American mind. It is what everyone who isn't a Christian assumes to be true. It is what they think they know. And we're just getting started. Part and parcel of the Christian message is the way of life that proceeds from faith in Jesus Christ. That is to say, Christian ethics. Those ethics, to take one example, include the way of sexual purity and of fidelity in marriage. It is the repudiation of both promiscuity, sex outside of marriage, and homosexual sexuality as both betrayals of the order of human life as God created that life and created it for himself. The modern American thinks it's obvious, hardly needs to be argued, that the Bible's sexual ethics are repressive, discriminatory, and inhumane. To forbid men the enjoyment of pornography, to forbid sex to anyone outside of heterosexual marriage, to forbid to homosexuals the fulfillment of their desires, seems to an increasing number of Americans simply bizarre. Did you read recently the remarks of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, himself supposedly a Roman Catholic, made on an Albany radio station? He was speaking of those whose views he considers extreme, and how such people really have no place in New York State. Who are they? Who are these extreme conservatives who are right to life and anti-gay? Is that who they are? Because if that's who they are, these extreme conservatives, they have no place in the state of New York because that's not who New Yorkers are. Why does a man who confesses to be a Christian a member of a church that has never approved of either abortion or gay marriage, think or say such a thing because he is a man of his time. He thinks conventionally. He takes his cue from the culture. For him, the sexual revolution has now been thoroughly mainstreamed. It's the way he was taught to think in school. It's a way of thinking reinforced by all his friends, by what he reads in the newspaper by what he watches on television. The ethics of biblical Christianity that not long ago were largely taken for granted in American society are now absurd to him. They defy all the conventions of modern American thought. He's no different from Celsus or millions of others through the ages who have found Christianity simply, literally, unbelievable. I say it's an easy point to prove the Christian faith is today, it has always been, utterly unconventional.
It requires people to believe what they are not inclined to believe, indeed what they have no intention of believing. They alternate between thinking aspects of our message deeply offensive or unscientific or merely preposterous. But in one way or another, they think our understanding of God and of his salvation is equivalent to taking a walled city by blowing trumpets while walking around it for seven days. Absurd. How is that going to work? What is that going to do? No matter what the conventions of a culture, some of them will invariably stand smack dab in the way, like Jericho, of our faith, of anyone's faith, in Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and as the Savior of the world. Now why all of this instinctive, universal rejection of the Christian message. That is actually a question very easy to answer. It is that these people have never encountered the God whom Joshua encountered outside of Jericho. They have no personal knowledge of the sort of God that the living God actually is. They've never realized that they have to take off their shoes because finding themselves in God's presence, they are standing on holy ground. They've never thought of God as the one as, that he has revealed to be in the word of God. No matter their view of God, Eastern, Western, ancient, modern, it's not the God who is. The God who made the world, who rules it as his dominion. And in particular, the God who stands before us with a drawn sword. The imagined gods of the ancient Near East demanded very little. They were as likely to be selfish and petulant as any human being. They were small-minded. They were easily pleased. They cared little or nothing about how anyone lived his or her life. They were not omnipotent. They were altogether made in the image of man. They looked pretty much like us. And lived pretty much like us, at least in the imagination of their worshippers. They were also largely indifferent to human suffering. The gods of the Far East did and do even less and demand even less. They are, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, there if you want them, like a book on the shelf. But they take no real interest in your life, or for that matter, in the life of the world. They will not intervene either to punish or to save. The God of the modern West, such as he is, is very much like that. He's there to help if you need his help. He's there to console if you need his consolation. But a God of judgment, a God of inflexible moral will, that is a God who determines what is right and what is wrong for every single human being, a God who cares how we live our lives, a God who warns, who punishes, who saves, a warrior God and a God who gives himself for the life of sinners, I say that God is nobody's conventional idea of God until he or she meets God himself. At that moment, whatever God says goes. Whatever he demands becomes our duty. And however he offers salvation to sinners is obviously the only salvation that there is. It matters not how utterly alien all of this is to the conventional thinking of our time. One sight, one encounter with the living God and everything changes. 
All previous thinking is swept away in a moment. This is what happened, you remember, to the Apostle Paul. He thought in an entirely conventional way for a Jew of his time. He thought like all his countrymen thought. He thought of salvation as mostly a human achievement with some help from God added as necessary. He found the very idea of Christians worshiping a man and their claim that God had become a man for man's salvation preposterous and repugnant. So much so that like Andrew Cuomo, he didn't think people who thought such things belonged in Palestine. And he did his very best to drive them out. And then he met the risen Jesus Christ was ordered, in effect, to take his shoes off. And in a moment, all of his conventional ways of thought evaporated like the morning mist. He found himself before a person so glorious, so commanding, whose authority was so impossible to deny, that Paul had no choice but to obey, to reorder his life, and to spend the rest of it serving the cause of this Jesus Christ he had once scorned as the foolish invention of some religious charlatans. The idea of fitness in our day is almost entirely now understood in terms of physical health and strength. I go to the gym three times a week, and scores, if not hundreds of people, are at work losing weight, or exercising their heart and lungs, or adding muscle. They've been taught to think that it is important and a great advantage to be physically fit. But the idea of spiritual fitness of holiness of life, of purity before God, is an idea that has become actually invisible in modern American culture. Nobody thinks about that. Americans may have some belief in God, most people do, but their belief is some vague idea. God, as they understand him, is never intimidating, never demanding, certainly never imposing in his holiness, holiness before which we would be exposed as profoundly and pervasively unholy. One can think himself or herself good enough for God only until he or she actually encounters God as he actually is. Only until he or she realizes what sort of being God really is. Then, like Joshua, it's to one's face before the Lord. It might occur to us to take our shoes off, to be polite, to keep from tracking dirt, or simply because we find it more comfortable to go barefoot. But the idea of taking off our shoes before God because He is so holy that it would be an offense for us to come into that glorious presence as if somehow we belonged there. That's not how the modern American thinks about God. Nor does he think that the six-winged seraphs that Isaiah saw would use two of their wings to cover their faces and two of their wings to cover their feet before the presence of God. But that is the truth about God. That is what God is actually like. He really is that holy. His life is really marked by that limitless majesty. His eyes, we read in the Bible, are too pure to behold iniquity. Our sins have made a separation between ourselves and God. 
And here is the most unconventional thought of all. Here's a thought that never occurs to people in the modern Western world. Self-confident, self-congratulatory, permissive, indulgent, and self-worshipping as people have become. We are guilty before this God. Deeply and pervasively morally defective. In the mirror of God's majestic holiness, we are revealed to be impure, unlovely, guilty of all manners of wrong. Our situation is hopeless. We cannot take the promised land by storm. We haven't the means. But there is a way for sinners to be made right with God. A way for people like us, selfish, petty, small-minded, persistently disobedient to all of God's commandments, to become not only God's friends, but God's children. The distance that separates us from God is to be sure, far too great for us to cross, but it's not too great for God. In love, he crossed it himself to reach us when he sent his Son into the world to die for us and our salvation, to endure the just deserts of our sin in our place and on our behalf. It's this God, the God of implacable justice, who is about to destroy a sinful city, who in immeasurable love came down to rescue people like ourselves from the fate we so thoroughly deserved. It is this mighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, who gave himself for us, that we might have life and have it to the full. That's what God is actually like. That's why to know him is life itself. To the inhabitants of Jericho, it must have seemed passing strange that Israel simply marched around their city day after day. What was that going to achieve? Did they suppose this was going to scare them out of Jericho? And what was that gold box with the angels on top that the priests carried around the city day after day? Well, that was the symbol of the presence of the Lord, the Lord who was going to do for Israel what she could not do for herself. The fact is, Jericho did fall. Israel did take possession of the promised land. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. That's how we know that God is the Savior of those who trust in Him. That's how Israel got possession of the promised land, and that's how anyone and everyone takes heaven still today. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Conventional ways of thought what people are simply sure they know to be true. You young people, when you get to college or if you're there already, you will encounter conventional ways of thought. You need to remember that these conventional ways of thought, what people are sure they know, are changing all the time. The conventions of American thought are actually quite new. They haven't become the conventions of American thought except within the last 35 years. And they are soon, if you can be sure of anything, you can be sure of this, they are soon to be replaced by others that a new generation of Americans will be just as confident in as this generation is confident in their conventional ways of thought. What does not change? What is the same yesterday, today, and forever is the living God himself. 
His word that endures forever, his promise, his love. And so it is that while people hold very confidently opinions about this and about that, opinions that are very different from the confident opinions people used to hold, our faith today is precisely the same as Joshua's, precisely the same as Paul's, precisely the same as the faith has always been of those who know that the Lord is God. When one encounters the Lord of hosts, one cannot believe anything else. Amen.